If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Just in case you were wondering, we do have rhyme and reason to why people are being dismissed at different times. It actually helps not only facilitate getting them back there, but also trying to do things decently and in order and, and for the kids and teachers and getting them actually somewhat settled when they go to hear God's Word in the classroom and, and all of the procedures. I, I really want to thank Pastor Kent and, and Pastor Steve and the others, other uh, children's workers uh, that are back there that help that. I, as a parent, am a beneficiary of that. Um, I enjoy, my wife and I enjoy sitting down at the dinner table uh, throughout the week and just going over the lessons that they do. Um, and it's, it's a blessing to see just how God is using different people in the lives of, of church family. And really, that's what we're here to talk about tonight, um, how God uses uh, the lives of you in the lives of others. Um, so we have, Pastor Tim mentioned this morning, that we have roughly about 430 members of Grace Church. I want you to imagine that Pastor Tim, you know, say Easter Sunday, you know, preached this wonderful sermon of the gospel, and uh, 12,000 people accepted Christ, and they showed up the next day, or the next worship day. That's basically what happened in Acts 2, verse 41, where when you had a congregation of 120 souls, and you had a sermon where God worked mightily, where he convicted, and 3,000 souls were added to the church. That's incredible. Um, that seems impossible, I mean, from our standpoint. And we know that God doesn't always work like that, but he does and can work like that. So I want you to imagine, maybe instead of 12,000 souls, what about 12 souls? What if 12 souls came to Christ? Do we just plop them in our seats and tell them to figure it out after they accepted Christ? Certainly that wasn't what happened in the New Testament. When these souls came to Christ, there was a reorientation of life, not just for the 3,000, but also for the 120. And I'm guessing that when we get to heaven and we get to talk face-to-face -face with these souls and we get to ask them about what this day was like, I'm guessing that they're going to look back at those days not with, oh, man, that was so much work, all these people, oh, what, uh, what a pain. No, I'm guessing that they probably look back on that with fondness, but also very much aware of the necessary reorientation of life and, frankly, church life just getting together that would have entailed. So we're in Acts chapter 2. I said, uh, I, I mentioned that in verse 41, we have this context of uh, these souls receiving the word, accepting Christ, 3,000 added to the congregation or to this body of believers. This was the birthday of the church, right? So we have this brand new body of believers, and you have these others who are teaching them. And there's this two-way relationship going on. There's a two-way relationship going on. And really, verses 42 through 47 just explain what that two-way relationship is like. First of all, in that two-way relationship, there was a worship with the church family, but the church family worshiping with the new believers. 
Okay, And so what I'm going to describe to you here is really what ought to be the case in our lives as well. In fact, I'll just go ahead and put it in the second person, you. So when this two-way relationship takes place, you will value worshiping with your church family, and the church family will value worshiping with you. Okay, That's the first thing that happened. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, I say you would value worship. They certainly valued worship. And worship really consisted of those four things there in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay? So the apostles' teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that his teachings were as the words of God. And that's exactly what the apostles would have been doing. They would have been teaching, but they would have been the word of God. They were teaching certainly the Old Testament, but they were also teaching what they themselves saw and heard of Jesus Christ. They were walking these new converts through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did, what he taught, and then how they were to live. Secondly, we also see not just teaching, but fellowship. Now, we think of fellowship, I know we're, you know, Pastor Steve just announced the, the youth after church, and a lot of times we think of fellowship as like pizza, pop, you know, a get-together, you know, just one of, uh, you know, a potluck or something like that. I think really this, this word for fellowship really should uh, maybe be thought in the context of a team. So if you're part of a team, part of a football team, or part of a basketball team, or a baseball team, or a sports team, or, or whatever team, you know, you do a lot of hard work in order to perform in a venue. And a lot of that hard work takes place over the course of time. And over the course of time, you build relationships with your teammates. You go through difficulties. You go through struggles. But it all is worth it when you're able to perform at a certain level and hopefully succeed. That's what this fellowship was like. These individuals were now saved. Everything had changed in their lives. Literally everything. And so now they had this new team that they were going to be suffering with. They might not have understood the extent to which they were going to suffer, but things were going to change. And so now they had these relationships with these saints that they didn't have before. So it was more than let's come over and you know, enjoy a nice meal and maybe you know, talk about whatever. It was more of a team, like they were in it for the long haul, and they were also in it to the death. Thirdly, their worship consisted of, um, of breaking of bread, which we just enjoyed today. That's communion. Now, this is something that they couldn't have done by themselves. I mean, the church never participates in, in the ordinance of communion or the ordinance of baptism as individuals from the standpoint of you don't just have it at home. No, this was something that was a church ordinance. And so they were enjoying celebrating the Lord's table. They were enjoying even uh, the love feast that often accompanied the Lord's table. So they valued that worship in the form of breaking of bread. And then of prayer, getting together and praying with one another. You know, last night, uh, just as a, a point of example, how I've been able to enjoy seeing you all pray and, and having you pray here at Grace. So last night we had um, a, a dinner. It was, it's called our Cabin Fever, where we have uh, folks come in from the Cleveland Institute of Music. They uh, sing songs, and there's a lot of planning and, and programming that kind of goes into that. 
And so the food is there, the, the people are coming in, they're finding their seats and this and the other. And I have a group of faithful helpers and, and one of my helpers was actually sick. And so a couple stepped in and they were helping out and, and you know, when it's about time to serve, you know, everybody's kind of going everywhere and everyone has jobs and we're all busy and whatnot. And I walk into the kitchen and there's a huddle of four or five people with arms around each other praying. I don't know if they were praying for that particular event. I honestly don't even know what they were praying for. What I do know is that they weren't doing their job of serving food and that they should have gotten out there right away. Of course not. That's not what I thought. But there's a part of it that's like, well, wait a second. Man, what a priority. And what an, what an illustration of, of something like this. It wasn't necessarily that they had to have a five or ten minute section of their worship service devoted to prayer. It was just part of their way of life. It was what they did when they got together. Can I tell you that the Lord is convicting me, just on a personal note, the Lord is convicting me that when, we, when I have the opportunity to talk with people about certain things or if they share a burden, to just pray for it right then and there. I'll tell you what, it's kind of awkward at first, but then after a while, that Holy Spirit that sometimes is a still small voice is more like a gong in your head. Like, yeah, you're talking about this burden, but man, just pray for it right then and there. What a blessing that is. And you know what? You're also doing something beyond just the immediate. You're actually giving that problem to the Lord. So that's what the early church was doing. They were valuing worship in the church family, but then the church family was mutually valuing it as well. The second thing that was going on here in this two-way relationship, remember you have the 120 that were there, that knew Christ, that were following Christ. You have these 3,000 folks coming in these two-way relationships that exist. So not only was there a value of the worshiping with the church family, but there was a value of the well-being of the church family. And the church family valued the well-being of those individuals. Look at verse 44. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They were valuing the needs of one another. Now, again, the context here is a group of believers. Some had wealth, some didn't. This was not a mandatory thing. In fact, I'd, I'd uh, encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We learn a little bit more about this practice, and I think it's helpful to learn about this practice, especially in our day and age, where it would it's actually quite common to look at a passage like Acts 2 and look at it as like a form of Christian socialism, where those, the haves, really have the responsibility to support the have-nots. And there was a, like a, a, almost a forced, like a pressure to, to you know, take from the wealthy and to give to the poor and make sure that everything had, everyone, everyone had everything in common. But we look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 helps us to understand a little bit more of this context. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And here's the key. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, you say again, this, this sounds like a Christian socialism, like you had people with, with wealth, with houses and lands, and they're giving to those who had need. But I think the key passage or the key phrase there it was in verse 32. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. Meaning this, that you did not have believers who tightly held on to their possessions. 
and said, this is mine, I worked hard for it. Oh, you lazy people, fend for yourself. No, there is an element of Christian family to where those who had been blessed with wealth were led of the Holy Spirit to be able to help those who were poor. And it happened, first of all, within the body of Christ. This wasn't a community thing. This wasn't the sense of obligation of seeing all of those people in the city of Jerusalem or all of the people in the greater Judean area. No, it was within the body of Christ, first and foremost. But second of all, it was done out of a labor of love, not out of duress, not out of being guilted into some sort of, of you know, duty. In fact, when we see the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, it wasn't that they had sold this property. It was that they lied about what they had given. So to that end, there was this desire to look after the well-being of the church family amongst one another. And it's also noteworthy, especially considering the book of Acts, just as a side note, that we don't see this really taking place anywhere else. Like, we don't read of this in any of the, the, uh, the letters, uh, any of the Pauline letters. We don't see this prescribed by either Paul or Peter or, or the author of Hebrews or anything like that. Really, this was, this was a situation that was pretty unique to what was going on in Jerusalem. And when you consider that, that in Acts chapter 2, you had all of these people coming into Jerusalem, and, and they were coming from all these different places, and they were staying there for a while, that... You know, perhaps as travelers, they didn't have possessions, or perhaps that there was uh, different circumstances that just demanded provision for them. So how do we help provide for these people who honestly just converted to Christianity and may not have the resources? Well, the church and the church body looked after itself. And I think we can see this even taking place in the context of prioritization of those who genuinely have needs within the body of Christ. So in 1 Timothy 5, for example... Paul talks to the believing community about caring for those who are widows, those who do not have children or grandchildren to help support them, those who are genuinely without financial means and protection, and that it was an opportunity for the body of Christ to come alongside and, and help to meet the needs of these who, individuals who have, and, and, and meet the needs of these individuals who, who honestly had no other way of providing for themselves. And there were very specific characteristics of what that looked like. But it was care nonetheless. It was benevolence nonetheless. So there was a value of worshiping with church family. We see that in verse 42 and 43. We see a value of the well-being of the church family. And then in verse 46, looking back at Acts chapter 2, a value of being with the church family. The value of being with the church family. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. So we see here really actually two different things. And when you look in the text, they might not be as immediately evident, but they're definitely there. First of all, we see evangelism. You say, where do you see evangelism in verse 46? Well, these new believers were with the older believers, but look where they were. Day by day, continuing with one mind where? In the temple. So when these 3,000 converts, they were Jews, remember? Pentecost, they heard the gospel. They accepted Christ, but they went back to where they accepted Christ. Why did they go there? Well, they weren't starting a brand new religion. 
They were there to preach that the Messiah that these people were looking for had come. And so by going back to the temple, no, they wouldn't have worshipped the same way they had before. They would have worshipped Jesus Christ. And they would have told others around them who had been part of the temple worship of who Christ was. But they were also doing it with the apostles and the original followers of Jesus. And it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. So they were going to a place where they would have opportunity to share their new faith. But then secondly, I also see in this verse, discipleship. You say, where do you see that? And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They ate together and enjoyed each other's company. And you'll notice, this wasn't just like, okay, so we have some guests here at the Church of Jerusalem. Who'd be willing to have, you know, guest Joe Fabitz come to their house and, and eat with them? You? Okay, good. Thank you so much. Well, you have the gift of hospitality, so we'll just kind of funnel them all to you. No, really, it was actually people kind of overwhelmed with all these new folks. It's like walking into church and not knowing who's new and who's not new. And so there was just this reorientation of, you're now my brother. You're now my sister. And there's something really awesome going on. God has changed me. And you know how I know it's real? Because not only the change that's taking place, but then also this unique, these unique events of what the apostles were doing. They were performing signs and wonders. And the function of those signs and wonders wasn't to perform a show or, or to put on you know, some sort of a, a wow event, but to authenticate the message. And so they were seeing this, and people were wanting to learn. And so where else to learn? Where else to get to know one another than just going to one another's house? Taking bread, enjoying meals. And notice how they were doing it. With gladness and sincerity of heart. Their conversations, we would say, they would have been organic. They would have been very relational. So all this is going on within the church. This, the value of worshiping with the church family and the church family valuing it. And then you have the value of the well-being of the church family and the family values you. And you have the value of being with the church family and the family values you. And then the natural byproduct of that we see in verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it wasn't like you know, the 3,000 you know, came in and whew, that's all we can take. Oh no. God kept adding. God kept adding. God kept adding. What an amazing thing that would have been going on. You say, okay, so this is great. That's fine, but so what? So as we looked at this passage, and as we've seen this two-way relationship, I want us to think about it maybe in the context of, of something a little bit different. And, and I asked them permission to use them as an example for this. So uh, the, the, the following illustration um, might be a little embarrassing to them, but I got their permission, so it's okay. So if you guys know Seth and Stephanie Brandt, last year they had the opportunity to adopt uh, a, a little girl from China named Brooklyn. And so that process took quite a while. There's a lot of uh, paperwork that they had to do. There's a lot of, you know, just interviews that they had to do. There's a lot of uh, traveling that they had to do, even just around here, to meet all the necessary people. And, and, and all this in mind, desiring, you know, if this is God's will, to adopt this little girl. Or to adopt, yeah, this, this little girl. There's a lot of financial expense. There's a lot of prayer. 
And so, to that end, you know, we fortunately we know the end of the story. We've, you know, those of you who know the Brants, you know, you know, you've seen Brooklyn, just what a blessing she is. And and so they travel over to China and and hoping that all along the way that the Chinese government doesn't put the kibosh on it on the way there, you know, or or in any part of that, which they could very easily do. And so they go over to China, they meet this little girl, they spend time with her there, and and the 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 the, the adoption is is finalized and they bring her home. And, you know, it's, it's this new life for this two-year-old girl. Now, so they bring her home, and, and the Brants already have three children, right? They have Landon, Addison, Dawson. You know, six, I think, five, three. I'm sorry if I messed up your children's ages stuff, sorry. They bring this new soul into their family, the soul that has never been on U.S. soil, the soul of that is still two years old, hardly independent from a life standpoint. The soul of that, literally everything is new. And the world that she came out of um, was, was a world that was good for her to get out of. If I can just put it that way. So imagine the first night there at the Brandt house. Brooklyn is in her bed. She's sleeping. And you wake up the next morning. And, and the Brants get up, and they go about business as usual. Where Brooklyn wakes up, and, and you know, she's wondering where she is. And she hears some noise maybe out in the kitchen. And there's Seth and Steph, and Seth's getting ready you know, to go off to work or maybe take you know, uh, Landon to school. And, and um, so he's just kind of doing his thing. And, and Addison and Dawson, they might be up or maybe they're still sleeping. And so Brooklyn's just kind of looking around, just taking it all in, can't speak English, just trying to figure things out. And, and Seth's just kind of doing his thing and, and getting everything ready. And then there comes Steph, and, and she's taking care of, of, of Addison maybe. And she's like, oh, hey, Brooklyn, how are you doing? And she kind of moves on and, and keeps, you know, just tending the house. And, and, you know, come on, Brooklyn, you're here now, you know. So, so we would never assume that to happen. I mean, if anything, the entire family reorients to adjust to this new life because of the value of this new life, right? So now, Seth and Steph, when they look at Brooklyn, they now know our schedules have to change. Now, maybe our attention you know, to, to certain things is going to have to adjust. In fact, there was a necessary adjustment where... They just needed to be home with her. You know, Steph was home with her for quite some time just to get her acclimated to that home, much less the greater environment because everything was new. Landon, Addison, Dawson, they had to adjust to this new soul in their life. I'm guessing they probably had to do some room arrangement. I'm guessing that maybe what they normally did in their home, the traditions, the things that were, they were just kind of used to, I'm guessing those things probably had to change as well. And not just at that one moment, not just the first day she came, but discovering all along the way, oh, man, this is different now. Man, what's that sound? Who's crying? What, well, I've never heard that before. Boy, what's that laughter? Just this constant, ongoing time of adjustment and I don't think that time has ended. And I don't even know if it ever will end. But could I tell you, if you talk to Seth and Steph, and if you talk to their little children, they would say in a heartbeat, it's all worth it, and that's one of their family. 
But can I tell you that within Christianity, sometimes it's easy to treat new converts exactly that same way. The way of what I first illustrated, the bad way. Not the good way, but the bad way. The bad way meaning this, that they come in, they accept Christ, and then we just kind of expect them to, to plop down in the church seat and learn by spiritual osmosis. Just come, hear the spiritualese. We wouldn't say this because it's kind of new agey, but get the spiritual aura and you'll figure it out. And can I tell you, there's a two-way relationship if we truly want verse 47 in our church. If we truly want God to add to our number, then guess what? That's going to demand something from you. It's going to demand something from you. And so two points of application I want to leave with you for this evening. First of all, as Christ builds his church, we come to receive the word and to give our time, talents, and treasures to be used to edify each other. Now that's not like one of those, oh wow, that's a profound statement. But what it does speak to is it's giving and taking. So when we come, we come to hear the word, to be sure. But we also don't just come to be takers. That when things in our church don't go as planned or don't go maybe the way that I want them, that I take my ball and go home. But actually, my coming here involves a level of me giving. Not just in the boxes around the lobby, but giving my energy, giving my abilities, giving my convenience, giving my time, giving my perhaps things I don't want to hold. I think there are sometimes, honestly, when, when we walk into the church and we just want to sit, and then maybe that person in the corner of our eye that we don't know, or, or maybe there's a, a person that we see that's kind of hurting, or maybe something, and it's just, we know it's there, and we almost just want it to go away. I wish I wouldn't have noticed that God, because frankly, I'm not coming here in the best frame of mind, and I don't feel good, and I j but why are we here? Is it just the take? If that were the case, then we should all just stay home and listen to podcasts. Or we should all just stay home and watch videos of previous sermons. There's the one anotherness. There's the two-way relationship that will never change by God's grace. It should never change. Second point of application. If we truly want God to produce new birth, I mean, that's what we're praying for. We prayed for it this morning. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're ongoingly praying for this. If we really want God to do that, to save souls in our community, you have to understand that you are simultaneously praying for your involvement in that process. Okay? Yes, we know God does it. But God uses people, not just in the saving, not just in the proclamation of the gospel, but in all the follow-up but in the caretaking of that soul moving forward. So it's not just, well, they accepted Christ. All right, we're good to go. Now I can go about my business. And again, they'll just kind of figure it out by spiritual osmosis. Nope. If we're praying for a spiritual new birth, we're also praying for an increased workload for us spiritually. 
I hope you understand that. I hope you realize that. But again, if we had these saints in front of us, they would say, oh, it's so worth it. And if you've had the privilege to be able to invest in souls, you would also say, it's worth it. It was worth it to whomever invested in you. What a blessing it is to see God work, but we also have to realize that we have a part to play for these new believers when they're added to the church. And again, I'll just finish with this. Do you want God to do for us what he did for Jerusalem? And if you do, will you make the necessary changes in the way you attend here to accommodate those souls? It will require change. It will require effort. But it is so worth it. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simplicity of it. But Lord, thank you for the, the, the clarity of it as well from the standpoint of what it demands of us. God, we recognize that there will be a time where we will be in perfect rest, but it is not here. It is not while we are alive on this earth when there are sinners dying and going to hell. And Lord, when, when there are souls that are being converted and coming uh, to be a part of our, 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 our body of believers here. Lord, we thank you for that privilege. We thank you for that opportunity. But Lord, we pray for, uh, we pray for the desire to do what's right. Lord, we read in your word that it is you who gives us not just the ability to do good things, but also the desire. Lord, give us that desire to truly invest in things that will last for eternity, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's tiresome, even if we think we're so unqualified. Lord, I think of, of even just the example of the Brants and, and Lord, taking this little one and, and certainly having moments where they don't feel like they're the right people. I'm, I'm certain that within our body of believers that when it comes to sharing the gospel or when it comes to reaching out to other souls that there will be times where we don't feel like we're the right people. But you have put us in the way. You've given us souls to reach out to, and you've given us lives to impact with the Bible, with our love, uh, with our time. May we do just that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.